everybody. This is Stephanie Ruper. Thank you so much for tuning into the Naked Humanity podcast, where we try to figure out what it means to be human in the modern world. Today is episode number 48, and I have on Tom McLeish, who's a theoretical physicist and an author of books on the relationship between Christianity and science. I just finished chatting with Tom, and I feel so honored and so happy and so excited that I got to have this uh, brilliant human on the podcast and to share uh, his ideas with you. I have been hosting this podcast now for many, many weeks. There are almost 100 episodes, more than 100 episodes, and uh, it's been coming out for more than a year. And throughout, I have always been, you know, I am a quite an intellectually humble academic who takes a step back from aligning myself with particular positions. And I try to point you in different directions. And throughout all of this time, I've had a lot of conversations about religion. And this is great. This is important. I am a scholar of religion. This is what I do. One thing people have said in response is, well, that's really cool. But like, what do you, what do you actually think about faith? Do you think religion is cool? Do you think it's not cool? You know, uh, and I want to be very, very clear that religion, like all things can be done in a way that is harmful and can be done in a way that is beautiful. And it just depends on your personal interpretation and choices and, um, all that sort of stuff. And I don't think that religion and science are incompatible at all. And this is a perspective born of my time in the academy and doing a lot of rigorous learning about the history between religion and science, and most specifically Christianity. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that I practice any particular religion. I do find many of them very beautiful, and some are closer to my heart than others, but uh, I don't necessarily practice. But that doesn't mean that I have to think that religion sucks. I don't have to think that religion is, is terrible or stupid or unethical or all of these things that uh, people who identify as atheist or humanist or secular in any way tend to call religion often. I don't. Um, and I have a background in the sciences. I was an atheist for many years and hated religion. And then I did my master's degree in a seminary. And I lived with pastors and theologians and came to realize that there could be so much intelligence and so much beauty uh, in these perspectives. And so I am so excited to have uh, Professor McLeish on to talk about uh, his views and his experience with science and with faith, because he provides one way. And there are many other ways of harmonizing science and faith, science and Christianity. Um, I want to be clear that I really like what he has to say in this show, but to reiterate uh, the ways in which you can make sense of Christian writings and Christian principles uh, are, are various, you know, many various. He uh, articulates his own personal interpretation of uh, the resurrection in a scientific way, right? And there are different ways to relate to biblical stories like the resurrection. And uh, we talk about the ark and, and miracles and, and the like. Um, so just know that, you know, uh, take his interpretations as his, uh, which are very lovely uh, and do your own thinking and maybe engage his works if you're interested. And uh, if anything, if you're not interested in picking up a religious faith or Christianity and you don't have to be at all, uh, I think it's really important to engage these ideas to realize 
how radically we oversimplify the history of religion and science. We get it all wrong in terms of the conflict between the two. Uh, and we tend to put people into oversimplified boxes. And so I think it's very important to understand uh, that people can have religious views in ways that are very sophisticated. And so, yes, so I have uh, Tom McLeish on the podcast. In order to do this, I will read a little bit um, about his background. Thomas Charles Buckland McLeish, FRS, FR, FRSC, uh, is the theoretical physicist whose work is renowned for increasing our understanding of the properties of soft matter. This is matter that can be easily changed by stress, including liquids, foams, and biological materials. He was professor in the Durham University Department of Physics and director of the Durham Chair for Soft Matter, a multidisciplinary team that works across physics, chemistry, mathematics, and engineering. But he is now the first chair of natural philosophy, something we'll talk about during the podcast, at the University of York. So he's an impactful, brilliant physicist. Um, he also has a series of books on Christianity and science. Uh, three of which I think uh, are uh, Faith and Wisdom in Science, which we discuss on the podcast, The Poetry and Music of Science, and Let There Be Science. Uh, and they're great, and we'll talk about them, and you can check those out. I will link to them, of course, in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm so excited to um, be sharing Professor McLeish's work with you. I am Stephanie Ruper. This is Naked Humanity. You know where to find us. Okay, without further ado. Here is Professor Tom McLeish. Hi. Okay. Uh, welcome, Professor McLeish. Thank you. I feel very welcome indeed. Looking forward to it. Oh, thank you. Yes. And my people in my audience always message me after we chat and they're like, thank you so much for having on a British person. It was so fun to listen to them talk or, you know, somebody from the UK. We have a very hard time identifying the appropriate accents as Americans. Okay. I'll see if I can just polish that, um, that, that school uh, Southern British accent for you, English accent. For you I see. Yeah. No, again, to reiterate, we wouldn't be able to tell the difference. So um, no, but, uh, but thank you. And I've actually had a lot of people message me and say, hey, I would really, I really liked it the other day when you said that you thought like faith doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing because in so much of our popular discourse it is. And so I'm so excited to be able to like talk about the concept of, of faith in a way that is like, affirming. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, we'll see. Um, <laughs> so uh, can you just start out and tell us a little bit about what you, what you get up to and why you do it? It's not very common to... Um, well, anyway, you go ahead. You're rare. <laughs> so I should just say, maybe um, as an academic, I should I should say that in so interdisciplinarity is my my life. So I'm a my core discipline. I think we all have to have one of those is theoretical physics, um, which I still do. So I think when anyone's talking about science, or about metaphysics, or about philosophical, or social, or, or theological context to to science, you've got to keep doing the science um, if you possibly can, because otherwise you forget what it's like. Um, much of the public image we project about science does not reflect the personal and corporate community experience of doing it, which is actually the main reason I wrote the Faith and Wisdom in Science book. Um, it, it's not uh, the best compliment someone ever gave to me is, you know, your book is not a religion and science book, is it, Tom? It's about what it's like humanly doing science. Yes, that's what I wanted to, to write about. Um, but in, I've always been I guess I've always been saddened by the fragmentation of our thinking landscape and our educational landscape, the one reflects the other. Um, and I had a very fortunate number of experiences, and people helped me in my early educational life to, to cross boundaries. I've been a terrible um, 
uh, academic trespass ever since. So in the science, I do I do biology and physics crossover and chemistry physics crossover. And I wanted to situate science within the humanities, which includes history, theology, uh, sociology as well. Um, and my own intellectual development uh, has sort of followed my personal development. So um, I, I became a Christian in early adult life, and I found that academic, as academically and um, uh, intellectually stimulating and challenging as it is in all areas of, 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 of life. And uh, perhaps I should just stop there and <laughs> see if I'm going in the right direction. That's yeah, it. no, no, um, yeah, we're great. And so I think, um, I think it's really important to understand that there are people in the world who see doing science and practicing or talking about religiosity, talking about faith. Like there are people in the world who do both and, and quite harmoniously. And I think, you know, it's such a shame that in our popular culture, we have this very dominant narrative that isn't, that's missing a lot of pieces, you know, in terms yeah. of the relationship between say a faith or specifically Christianity um, and, and science. So maybe you can like uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your were you a scientist and then you found Christianity? Is that how it all started? How did it get started? Well, I, I, I have to say, I've probably known I'm a scientist since I was about two and a half years okay. old. <laughs> so, so science definitely came first. Um, I still remember, you know, I was seven. I mean, yes, I was what you might call, you know, a typical geeky guy. I mean, this was the moonshot era, right? But the, the whole idea of doing an experiment used to send a little quiver of excitement up my arm spine. And I had a, uh, my grandmother, who, uh, she's a very interesting, wonderful lady, um, who uh, she w took an, one of the first to take a botany degree, actually, at London University as a young woman in the early early 20th century. Um, fascinating, wonderful scientist herself. Uh, also, actually, incidentally, a very committed Christian. I remember her preaching and giving little talks at the church East Time used to go to every day. So uh, I hadn't thought of that as being a very strong um, to recently um, uh, influence on my uh, my my early life because I, I really didn't think uh, an understanding of making a decision of worldview came till much much later. Um, but yeah, uh, it, and I think I, I think the 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 false dichotomy or the false conflict um, in in the intellectual world as if in, as much as in the public world around science being opposed to, 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 to faith, is, has three dimensions to it, and I think all of which have been artificially constructed, and all of which I think is being, are being helpfully dissolved currently. So I'd say one is, um, one is if you like, sort of ontologically, people have an idea that, that, um, that, that science, religious faith sort of compete for the same epistemological ground. Um, that, that's one thing we can attack philosophically, right? And the second um, uh, thing to say is that um, is history uh, and the uh, the myth, and it really is a myth that the canonical relationship, the archetypal relationship of church, churches, religion in general, and science has been one of conflict or oppression, is simply, simply just not true. Um, I've, yeah, of course, it's colourful. It's interesting. There have been one or two occasions where where big egos have clashed, and um, like the Galileo affair. But as Peter Harrison, one of the great historians of science, has recently pointed out, to project back onto a 16th-century massive clash of egos, Galileo and Papamia, in which everyone involved, all the protagonists, were Christians. 
um, no one ever called that faith into account, and in which most of the discussion was scientific, not theological, is simply a, a category mistake and a, and a, a projection back. So that's that's history, um, and I think um, and I think the the third area is is actually is actually philosophical and. And, and, and humanistic. It's the framing of science. Um, it, it's a why we do why we do science and what we mean by science, which I've been really interested in. How long it is? Is science really only a, a, a late modern or a, sorry, early modern to late modern phenomenon, or does its roots go back much much further? Uh, and and how we how we situated it? Yeah, sure. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about like the history of science and how it came to be and how it's related to Christianity. Right. So, well, there are many routes. So let's, let's go back before the, um, well, let's, let's do early modern, early modern, medieval and, and ancient. We have to do little, three little, three little um, examples and we'll go backwards in time. So uh, it, there have been, of course, um, People like Stanley Yaki and, 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 and others have made rather grandiose claims about, about science relying on a Christian intellectual media to, to be developed. You know, without Christianity, there could be no science. And I think that's clearly uh, uh, over, over strong. The, the ancient Greeks had early ideas of, of science and, and very ancient people did, did, did as, as well. Um, but if we focus in on something like the experimental method, uh, so we we tend to look at our, our ancients through the wrong end of a telescope all the time. Why didn't the ancients and the medievals invent the experimental method that we do now that's so helpful? And the reason is, and there are some a few but wise voices in the history of the philosophy of science here who realise why the reason is, um, that you know, the reason is it is just not obvious at all that one learns anything about the complexity and reality of nature by doing something as oversimplified and artificial as an experiment. Now, just two ingredients in a test tube, one little thing, very simplified, it, you know, uh, heat it to a particular known temperature. Why? Nature is huge out there. There's a pond life world out there. What's going on? Um, for, my, for my money, Margaret Cavendish, um, first woman to attend a meeting of Royal Society, great commentator, um, natural philosopher of the uh, 17th century, um, critiques this best of all, particularly in her early science fiction novel, Blazing, Blazing Worlds. Margaret should be known, much better known. And that's the point. In order to overcome this obvious, ridiculous idea that you can learn something about nature by doing an experiment, you need very, very strange, unusual, surprising, um, radically different worldview. It so happens that the experimental method, as developed by Francis Bacon, Robert Boyle, um, and then that leads on to the founding of the Royal Society, drew quite explicitly, this you can't shell away, on Christian theology. It's, it's the consequence of the fall that dulled our minds, that, that then means that we have to rely on our sense uh, data, not information. Um, so we have to do something like, like experiment and play with nature in very simple ways in order to get on the first rung of the, of the, the, the ladder. Uh, and that's that's enshrined in in, in, in the document the, the documentation of the history of early modern modern science. That's one example where right at the heart, just one issue. We can talk about many others. That one of the key issues of early modern science does clearly have a Christian theological ingredient in in its imaginative and creative formation. 
medieval world, my favorite. So one of my 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 favorite um interdisciplinary project at the moment is um, with a group of scientists working with medieval scholars on 13th century science. Uh, it's called the Ordered Universe Project, and we're having a blast. Um, okay. <laughs> we read, scientists and you, we read science from the 1200s together. We read the treatises. And of course, it works because these are highly mathematical, highly physical um, uh, they, documents. They resonate with mathematical physicists like myself. But they're written, of course, on vellum in truth to us, paleography, in medieval Latin. So if you're good enough at the humanities to actually read these things in our generation, you probably gave up the math and physics you need to understand them when you were about 12 years old. So you see how it works. It's huge fun. And the scientists among us have recovered an enormous respect for these pre-scientific revolution thinkers to the extent we're shaking our heads and thinking when we were at school, when we were undergraduates, why did no one tell us that the first three-dimensional theory of color space was written down in 1224 by Robert Grosteste, who later became Bishop of Lincoln, master of the Oxford Franciscans? And because these people knew perfectly well when they were doing science and when they were doing theology. There's no confusion here. Uh, but there, the idea to, to suggest to these people that there's some conflict would be quite ridiculous. In fact, they have theological rationales of pre-Baconian on those lines to um, um, what they're doing. And then just thirdly, you know, what, what resources, what, so what, what traditional in, in Judeo-Christian sources do these people draw on? Um, and it, it, you meant in the book Faith and Wisdom on Science, I, I drew on for what to me is the outstanding ancient scientific poem of from any civilization, which is with, founded in the Book of Job, it's, it's a document. We no one knows when it was written. It's um, Middle Eastern Semitic, first millennium BC, somewhere. It's ended up in the Wisdom Corpus of the Old Testament. Um, it's not a very well today. It's not a very well-read book, but actually, if you were to plot along a sort of literary history of philosophy and plot, you know, frequency of citation of different biblical books, you know. Genesis, Numbers, Deuteronomy, blah, 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 the Gospels. On Job, there would be sitting this massive spike. Everyone's written about Job, from Basil the Great to Emmanuel Levinas and Kant and everyone in between. It's, it's grasped people's imagination and small wonder because it's just soaked in questions about nature. And, you know, you, you, so, well, I've often said to scientists, you know, I had a religion science discussion with them at a conference. So, well, look, you know, there's a Bible in your bedside. You were staying at this hotel. Why don't you look at Job, the Lord's answer, Job, Job uh, chapter 38. Breakfast the next morning, kid you not, amazed. I had no idea, they say, that anyone could write so deeply and profoundly about questioning natural phenomena um, in such ancient ancient literature. So just three little historical vignettes of how the how how uh, you know science lives for me within this the- theological world. Right. I, we have this false binary where we sort of think that science emerged with the rationality of the Enlightenment and therefore the, you know, science and faith are totally oppositional. And of course, that's a very complex history. Uh, but I absolutely, I so agree with you and appreciate that, like the quest to know nature has been in humans for ages and ages. That's just, that's, that's human. And, and just because it has become more advanced doesn't mean that we necessarily must ally to the rest of what it means to be human. 
No, I think that's 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 absolutely right. And, and one of my motivations here is I, mean, I feel that where science has got itself into a, a really um, damaging place in the media and social framing right now. It's in a geeky, polished book box in which only experts have the key inside. We occasionally emerge on radio or TV to you know tell people what we've discovered. Um, in, and actually, you know, I've written um, actually the preface to the book. I had an I had a little day night of a nightmare. Imagine nightmare of just how awful this is, and to make it clear how awful and inhuman and dehumanizing it is uh, to put science in a geek box. Um, I imagined what it the world would be like if we had done with music what we've done with science. And I realized that in such a world, it wouldn't that there would be no, you know, jazz quartet sessions or symphony orchestras or operas. There would be, but they would all take place in academic laboratories or sonology laboratories, like I called them, where they'd be listened to by ref- experts with refined uh, e- ears. No audience would want to go to these things. I mean, in, in podcasts or programs the next day, um, you know, the conductor might be interviewed by a radio producer, and she or he might might whistle the tune, you know, for the audience, so a little snippet of tune. But the idea that the public at large could cope with harmony or counterpoints, ridiculous. You get the point. And so you impoverish people. I think that science belongs in the same basket of human activity that painting, music, humming tunes, um, creating beautiful artifacts, uh, all those things, theatre, drama, writing stories, poems. I think science belongs, what we now call science belongs there. Um, and insofar as all those other activities have a long history to the dawn of civilizations, dawn of written records, I think, like you, I agree that science does as well, but that we need to call it by different names. So um, it, 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 the the... We've only been called scientists, by the way, you know, for the last 200 years. That, that, that word, scientist, didn't exist before 1834. Uh, we know it was made. Before then, we would be natural philosophers. And, and that word, philosophia, or wisdom of nature, is, I think, my preferred. I love calling science love of wisdom of nature, which is its old name, rather than science, which means I know. And so that's why you look in the wisdom, because it's wisdom, uh, you look in the wisdom corpus of ancient literature, like the Old Testament, to find tributaries you know, to the river that we now call, call science. And I hope that helps people feel themselves more part of, of, of a much wider, more diffuse scientific community, just as... Everyone feels, you know, they have they engage with music in some way, even if it's just as a listener. But you know, audiences are really important in the creative musical process. Yeah, I I have had people on before talking about how science is. We're all scientific in, in various ways. You know, you look at the moon and you wonder, you know, something about what the other side of it looks like, or right, you yeah. because of these feelings of wonder. And also we test hypotheses all the time. We're constantly testing hypotheses, right? And so, um, but I'm curious, we tend to, you know, in the arts, I can sit down and draw a picture and I'm like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm engaging in this thing that is therapeutic or expressive. Right. Uh, but in the sciences, we tend to think, well, if an experiment has been done before, then obviously there's no point in doing it, you know? So what do people do 
when they're say adolescents or whatever and want to engage science, but they obviously can't be working at CERN, right? They can't be smashing, you know, electrons together. And so what can you do? How can science actually be a part of people's lives the way music is? Well, that's a wonderful question. Um, and I think I can answer it in, in a number of ways. Um, for, one, for one thing, just because an experiment's been done doesn't mean you can't do it again and doesn't mean you don't notice something that people haven't seen before. Nature is complex and the conditions are never quite the same and you really learn things. Second, science is such a huge, variegated, fractal object. Um, some of us who are working on the history of science, it's not just us within the, within the medieval project. So within the medieval project, by the way, um, what we hoped we'd be able to do as science was to help the medieval scholars understand the literature of the time, which I think we've been able to do. The last thing we anticipated is that we'd get a whole raft of new science publications out of this. But we have. And, I mean, there isn't about 10 or so, I think the last count, I've lost count. Um, there isn't a single treatise from the 13th century that we haven't looked at in this project over which at one point, one of the scientists hasn't, hasn't said something like, hmm, that's an interesting idea. I wonder if you do get something that looks like a rainbow if you shine light through an inverted cone. <laughs> or, hmm, he's saying that um, the shapes of our vocal tract look and cross-section a bit like the vowels we're making when we... Is, did anyone ever test that? Oh, they didn't. Uh, so uh, we've actually found all sorts of interesting ideas that form experiments today. Also, I mean, you know, when we make little sketches, you know, it, it, when I make, oh, I go on holiday, I sometimes make a little sketch of a castle because it's no one ever, you know, wants to see those sketches. I'm going to exhibit them, but they're for me. But but I love the idea that, that I can, um, you know, record this and, and 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 get my impression of the brick wall or the stone wall. That's not quite working, but I'm interested in how the shade there. You know, art helps us look better and listen better. Science also helps us look better and listen better. And amateur amateur science has its role, even if it's just just private. But the other thing I should say is, it turns out you're wrong about the particle physics and the school kids and the adolescents. There are school children involved in particle physics projects now, for real. And <laughs> uh, in the UK, we have um, a wonderful organisation called the Institute for Research in Schools. And um, also, I do some work, I'm passionate for edge science education. I actually currently chair uh, the Education Committee of the Royal Society uh, it, itself, which is a huge privilege to do. And, and we have a scheme where we award partnership funding to schools to get, to get in with another organisation. could be a in local company, industry, could be university, and give school kids of any age, actually, pupils, the experience of open-ended investigative science. So, so there's all sorts of ways in which, uh, and we haven't even started talking about citizen science yet, Maybe we should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, sure. Do you want to talk about citizen <laughs> Well, well, maybe I should say one of the um, one of my uh, early uh, before we do that. Well, it all started with Robert Boyle, by the way. Um, so Boyle is a very interesting guy because um, you know Boyle's law. Uh, he he developed not only Boyle's um, uh, Francis Bacon's idea of. Of, of, of the philosophy for experimental method into how you instantiate this experimental method. He also incidentally developed this genre of writing. Um, the Royal Society founded the first, invented the idea of a scientific journal. So the proceedings of the Royal Society, no one knows how you write about science before. 
and, and Boyle was one of the, the first developing the first people instantiating this genre of writing, which is which is writing about an experimental uh, method, which is um, a sort of a literary genre if you think about it. Uh, anyway, he was also a very very committed Christian thinker and. Um, believed that doing science was, was a form of worship, was a form of Christian response to our stewardship of the world and, and all that stuff. But one of the consequences, he also was a Protestant, and I'm fascinated by a little philosophical idea, a philosophical historical idea that I've had about what happens when you allow the, uh, the rich complex, uh, complex of ideas that we we term the Reformation, you know, the 16th century Reformation, how you uh, how that impacts on science. Now, you might think, why should it impact on science? Um, well, let me explain. So one thing that Reformation does is to say, look, um, we've, we've developed the wrong idea of priesthood. Uh, the priest has become in the church some intermediary between the ordinary parishioner, or woman or man in the pew, and, 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 and God. And, the whole point about the incarnation and the Jesus events and the Judeo-Christian story is that there's no intermediary. That's the whole point. So we have to recover a, a more servanthood idea of a priesthood or pastor, or whatever, and we have to do things that allow individuals to develop their own personal spirituality and theology, which includes, by the way, translating the scriptures from the Latin into the vernacular. Huge step. Um, printing helps and allows people to develop a personal daily piety that involves reading scripture. Okay, park that for a moment. Now bring another metaphor about nature. For centuries and centuries, for better or worse, um, writers have been thinking about nature as God's second book. Um, you know, first book of scripture, second book, isn't it? God wrote two books. Galileo said this, um, Hewitt and Victor in the 13th century said this, arguably goes right back to Augustine, um, who gave us some caveats about it, but it's a long light motif. Reading nature is like reading a book. Okay, so if, if the consequence of the Reformation Here's a good science theology tangle for you, by the way. I really enjoy this. This is where this is this is where if the if the Reformation says it shouldn't just be some educated elite priesthood who read first God's first book. It should be everybody in a daily practice of piety that becomes part of their human expression of themselves and their reconciliation to themselves and to God and the world. What does it say about our reading of God's second book? Should it not also say that there's no intermediary here, no priesthood, but the reading of God's second book should be open to everybody? as a matter of personal piety and part of their human response to their environment and their nature, and they're becoming more fully human. And so it was that, God, that Robert Ball, among others, um, started, in the, uh, uh, coincidentally, with, the, with early modern science, a movement that was known as occasional meditation. And what he says is that everyone should take a little daily book with them and note down their observations of nature. And, you know, sometimes this will be of help to professional scientists too, but even if it's not, it allows them to reflect on the light in the water, the way the trees move, what's on the backside of the moon. Beautiful example, and that's such a lovely example that I hadn't thought of before. And uh, so, so this idea of all citizens are scientists 
um, is actually part of the theology, theological framing of early modern science. Now, the fact that it didn't survive very long and was sort of snuffed out by the professionalization, I dare to say, imposition of the new priesthood of professional scientists by societies like the Royal Society, um, Mea Culpa, is, is, a, is a historical perhaps a little bit of a wrong term. But today, I think we see this reflorescence of, of this lovely idea in citizen science. You know, in Galaxy Zoo, there are ordinary untrained people, you know, categorizing, cataloging galaxies and, and searching through DNA and um, doing all sorts of wonderful scientific projects. There we are, which I think is deeply enriching to do. Yeah, no, I, I think it's so important. And I actually didn't know citizen science existed until like, I don't know, a year or two ago. Um, but I, I'm so, I'm, yeah, no, I'm, I'm thrilled by it. Um, something that I'm really deeply curious about is, um, you know, we've talked about how science is sort of can be um, practiced as a participation in this ongoing quest, something that is deeply religious you can find in the book of Job. Um, but I think a lot of people see the antagonism between religion and science as scientific ideas, things that we you know tend to believe in in science now, disprove things that we believe or once believed in in religion, right? Like resurrection, Noah's Ark, like miracles in general, right? And so what, how do you make sense of what do you do with your faith what shape does your faith take because it obviously doesn't take something that has principles contradictory to science so right. how, do, how do you sort of make these two work right right well so one thing to do is to teach you the, the list of examples you, you sort of rapidly went through there are very very different kinds of things yes so that was intentional differentiate you deliver i saw what you did there but <laughs> very different kinds of things so noah's ark for example is of course a story of a giant flood a huge flood and a boat with a few people is is very widespread in ancient literature including including literature like Gil the gilgamesh epic that precedes the genesis doctrines no doubt about that um but in fact, you know, uh, so one has to be, um, uh, one has to be very um, committed and respectful of biblical literature. And, and I, I, you know, I do want to say that some of the conflicts, these sorts of conflicts you've mentioned, are invented ones, and as, as many are invented inside the church as outside. Okay? So just to take one extreme example, the, the massive conflict between what's unfortunately called creationism or, or young earth creationism or six-day creationism is a very new event. I mean, you might have imagined that people have been thinking of this in the Christian church for centuries. It's just not true. Um, mainstream orthodox Christian um, interpretation of scripture from origin onwards has been much more nuanced, has recognized um, that much of the scriptures are written metaphorically, they're written to the people with the in into the ideas of their time. Of course they are. So uh, so they reading them like a modern science text is not an appropriate or consistent or a respectful thing to do. So what's the Bible doing with a Noah story in it? With a flood story in it? Uh, you know, it's taking see if you have uh, what, of course, biblical literature does is it, is it bursts out on the pagan world with this extraordinary idea that all these gods um, are 
are no better, no less petty than the sort of fancy humans. And that you need to list, lift your eyes up further, people, to Yahweh, to, to, the, to the Lord God who created and is behind and beneath and the, uh, the substantiator of everything um, who creates out of nothing, so forth. So, so the difference between the Noah's Ark story in the Old Testament and the other stories is that rather than, than it, uh, the flood or the rescue arising as some um, uh, collateral damage of an argument between petty deities, that it, 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 it comes within a covenant loving and saving and purposeful purpose of the one creator God. That's the difference. Now, what that says about in the historical veracity of, of this thing is, is, is it, it, that in that case, that's not important. The creation story as well, by the way, and <clears throat> when it comes to creation stories, is what I say to people who say, well, you know, doesn't your science disprove the six-day creation story? I say, well, which creation story do you want me to read? The, the, the accounts of creation in different languages, using different symbols and different metaphors, throughout the Bible, and I lost count at 25 in the Old Testament alone. Um, my favorite has to be Proverbs 8, when the female personification of wisdom, Sophia, little Sophie, is in the early world like a child in a sand pit, throwing up mountains of sand and, 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 and separating ponds of seas from, from dry land and delighting in the creation event. Fantastic. So should we... Uh, believe that there a, was a little girl involved in rather than six days and did it in the sandpit. Well, you know, come on. Um, however, you also mentioned the resurrection. Now, the resurrection <laughs> is, is, you know, the question is, do you believe in the creator? Before we get to the resurrection, you see, this is, this is what makes Christians look foolish in this appropriate way. We actually do believe in that the universe was created. And you're like, of course, why shouldn't it be? But um, it, that's a really extraordinary thing because the universe is full of order and structure. And our, you know, our miracle is that physics teaches us that, you know, we, can, we, can, we all sort of sketch down all sorts of different possible universes. And the, the, the chances that, that you sketch one that looks like this one, that with the propensity to, um, to flourish and promote, um, order and life and intelligence is, is very, 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 very tiny. You know, I know about anthropic and all that, but the, the, the thing is that there is so much order and word and anti-entropy, if you like, to inject into the universe. The creation of the universe is a sort of utter miracle. Now, what goes on in the resurrection, it's very important to understand the theology of the resurrection. It's not a resuscitation. The resurrection is the first little phase transition, like little bubble of the great hope, which in our hearts we all have, that someday this tawdry, rather shabby, rather hate-filled, rather sad place will be all wrapped up like a garment and replaced by something completely new and permanent and eternal and good. And you can only do that by overcoming death. And there's only one person who can overcome death, who is the person who did all that creative thing in the first place, who empties himself and becomes incarnate 
and turns the whole thing inside out uh, and begins this process of renewal um, and becomes the origin, the delta function, force point, the source of hope. That's the resurrection. So <laughs> you can't. The point is that because the resurrection is like a phase transition of an entirely new physical order, that is what the witnesses said. And because without that, we've got better things to do than follow this Christian thing. But that that stays. But you see, science doesn't disprove that any more than science disproves the creation of the cosmos in the first place. <laughs> so, you know, three different things. Miracles, by the way, you know, um, yeah, there's a um, wonderful book on Old Testament uh, miracles written by a former professor of uh, materials uh, science at, at Cambridge who recently went on a on a you know on a tour to the Far East and went through Moses' journey, recapitulated Moses' journey, and found that there, you know, at one point Moses bashes a rock with his stick and and out comes water. It turns out that that, that nomads in the Sinai Desert know about rocks that are porous and that have a sandy hard skin, and the, the very occasional rains fill these rocks and you can bash them and stuff. So, you know, the, the fact that Moses knew how to do this is, is, is a miracle in the sense of a sign and something to wonder at. So, you know, biblical miracles fall into all these different classes. I've, you know, there's a literary class, there's a natural event that's, that's specially significant because of what it points to, um, but there are miracles like the resurrection, and I suggest some of the healing miracles as well, that don't shift because they're aspects of a whole new order. Mm. Yeah, that's um, that's very interesting. I appreciate that. Generally speaking, right, so sort of what you're saying is sometimes things that we happen upon in text are, they are, uh, there are multi many, many different versions within the religion itself. And so we need to not oversimplify and say, this is the, this is the religious, this is the Christian, this is the Jewish interpretation, this is the scientific, because there's many there. So there's more complexity. And you're also saying that when we like look at these events in a sophisticated way, we can also match it with a sophisticated science. And so there is no way in which science is actually disproving these events that probably happened, happened in some way, but not in the oversimplified way that we often think about. Right. Mm -hmm. And then maybe sometimes also um, things are allegoric or symbolic. Right. And so there's yeah. these like yeah. many different ways that you can see yeah, that you can relate to or interpret scripture such that like they're not actually incoherent with science. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. And and essentially, I would say that that um, uh, that so scripture also doesn't give us shortcuts. And and the the people I mentioned before, you know, the um, uh, the, the uh, pre 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 modern scientists like Robert Crosstest I mentioned. Uh, we could go back even further to one of my favourite uh, scholars, the Venerable Bede. We call him around here in the northeast of England. Um, uh, great learned scholar of around the year eight hundred um, uh, at Durham University in the northeast, where I spent ten years. Till recently moved, moved to York. Um, uh, Bede is actually uh, buried. His remains are buried in the Cathedral at Durham at the. At the, the West End. He wrote, um, he's famous because he wrote uh, uh, a book um, called The Ecclesiastical History of the English Speaking Peoples. It's the first post Roman, you know, the Romans up to off halfway through the fifth century. And um, it, we're called this the Dark Ages, but actually, scholarship, um, 
scholarship persisted all the way through. And then people like Bede, who was a fantastic genius mind, wrote about the geography and history of the British Isles. It's a wonderful book. But and everyone knows about that book. Um, Fewer people know that he also wrote a little science text called De Rerum Naturum, on, on Natural Things. He wrote it for his student monks. And uh, he wrote about, as far as people were aware, the causes of the stars and the motions of the planets. And, and, and he comes down to the atmosphere and the storms and atmospheric phenomena. And he goes to the earth and rocks and earthquakes and plants and so forth. Um, and it's a fascinating account. It's a quick read. You can read it in translation, actually. Um, uh, for translation by, uh, by, by, by Faith Wallace from Liverpool University Press in 2010. Um, it, it, to, to, to read through. But the preface is particularly interesting because Bede then says, look, um, why do we look at nature? Why do we study nature? Why, why, why does God want us to study nature? And he says, well, look, it's, it's because that unlike primitive peoples, you know, when the, when the lightning strikes or the thunder rolls or the storm falls or the earth shakes, we're not to believe that there are some little devils or spirits out to get us or evil presences like the pagans or the other people do. No, no, we're, we need to understand that this complex nature is made in the way that God made it to, made it to be. We're not to fear it, we're to understand it. And that idea that what we mean by science is, is a reappropriation of understanding of nature so that for the very basic level, we should not. We should be less afraid. Is a wonderful thought. It's a theological mandate for science. It's also, incidentally, one of the most lovely things Marie Curie, uh, Marie um, uh, 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 Slavoska Curie said. Uh, she said we um, uh, said we learn more uh, in order that we may fear less when asked about science, one of her great sound bites. I don't know whether she knew she was drawing on a massive theological story history here that goes right back to the Venerable Bede in the northeast of England in the in the eighth century, but uh, but she was. Um, I actually have never heard that before and I'm gonna write it I'm writing it down right now because I think it's so nice. Um, yeah. Yeah, I I think that that's I think that that's really um so you see, it helps us reconcile this. It's another way into reconciling this false conflict because it's not that Christianity invades the territories of science and offers offers alternative explanations. Quite the converse. It actually it actually articulates a human motivation, a purpose, a teleology for science, and what the consequences of doing science can and should be for humanity for community. And look, if it's all about, you know, what I, what I came to the point after doing a lot of thinking, reading around this in, in Faith and Wisdom on Science, I had to go a little go crack at how, how we might formulate a theology of science today along these lines. And uh, um, but it doesn't, you don't need to develop much further to, to realize that it sits within um, a sort of wider Christian sound bite, bite that's actually due to St. Paul. He once had to write rather in haste to the, to the Corinthian church and explain what this Christianity thing was all about. And the nutshell into which he put it was, okay, folks, I'll tell you what it's about. It's about healing broken relationships. It, it's used, the Greek is usually translated, we have the ministry of reconciliation, but reconciliation, that's what it means. And I thought that's absolutely brilliant because it it's not religious language. He didn't say, well, it's all about this person called Jesus, let me spend two hours telling you about him, or it's all about the laws of Moses, let me remind you about that. It's no healing about relationships. Everyone understands that. 
we all have broken relationships. We all have that sort of pain with in one way or another. Um, and I think it, you know it, it's compelling to see the 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 main Christian purpose as being that. And of course, the way that that works is because, of course, we say, "How do we do that?" Well, the, the reason we're so bad at healing broken relationships. In fact, we tend to just mess up and cause more broken ones through our own selfishness is because we just live for ourselves all the time. So so the the healing of that fundamental relationship between humanity and, and God is what we can't achieve, but that's the, that's what Christ achieves. That's the Christian source for energy for healing other relationships, one of which is the most humble relationship of all. It's not fancy counselling or diplomacy between nations or with each other. It's not fancy marriage coupling or interracial conflict. All those are really important. It's a totally humble relationship. So humble, we don't often think of it as a relationship between human beings and the material world. But if you think about it, it is a broken relationship. Like Peter, we fear it. We don't like that in earthquakes. I think we I don't like nature. We, we, even Bacon's talked about dominating nature and rather gendered language, which is probably not that as an aspect, so they're a bit dark. But as Marie Curie said, you know, by learning about nature, we fear less. The first step in healing a broken relationship is to know each other more, so you fear less. The second step is to replace that fear with, uh, um, with, um, uh, with, with wisdom, with some mutual trust. And then, and then the third final step is you can stop the hurt. You can stop hurting each other and instead help each other to flourish. And it's extraordinary that in our own times that we've had centuries of you know, being, knowing that we can be hurt by nature, by pestilence, by flood, by earthquake, by disease, and using science generally to uh, reduce the risk and emolliate the effects of that hurt. In our own generation, we've learned only too profoundly how much we can hurt nature works both ways as well. So um, getting, getting climate change and its mitigation and our, our stopping ourselves hurting, hurting nature is simultaneously a profoundly scientific, political, social, personal, and, and, and a theological act of such urgency. That's so beautiful. Um, I appreciate that so much. I, it's not often, right, that you can sort of bring somebody on a show and have them talk for 45 minutes and have them give you like a completely new way of looking at the world that's really beautiful. But I think you just achieved that for my listeners, which is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, it was really, really lovely. Um, so we are going to wrap up, but uh, if people want to learn more about your perspective, you have a ton of really great books. Can you tell us uh, their titles and how they Okay, yeah. So if they like what we're talking about today, the Thinky book is called Faith and Wisdom in Science, paperback OUP 2014. Um, uh, it's got loads of stuff. I like to say there's science in it, there's theology, there's literature, there's there's something there's something not to like for everybody in that book. Um, and there's a big central commentary of the book of Job from a scientist point of view. Um, someone once told me they found it filed in the library under commentaries on Job, and I was so excited and happy. Then there is um, to go. There's a blog post that goes with that. It's 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 just a WordPress blog post, uh, Faith and Wisdom and Science, and uh, um, I take discussions and and stuff on that. Um, there is a 
Um, now, there's another book uh, on the same theme of how you retell the story of religion and faith and science, Judeo-Christian faith as well. Incidentally, we should have mentioned Islam because Islam is really important. There's another time, I can't believe we're stopping now, but, but Islam has a really important yeah, uh, uh, um, covenant um, uh, monotheistic part to play in the whole history of theology of all this. Another time, another time, another time. But there's a book about that written more for a quick read or if you're a school, high school pupil, or it's like a first-year undergraduate, um, then there's a book I've co-written with a physics high school teacher called Dave Hutchins called, called Let There Be Science. Um, nice title. Hey, I was, yeah, I didn't think of that. He did. It was great. No, his wife did. Uh, uh, Let there, and then um, just recently this year, I've got, um, this is more along the lines of science for everyone and exploring the entanglements and complexities of science and art. I wanted to write a book about creativity because I heard too many times school kids saying I'm dropping science because I don't think it's got room for my creativity or imagination. That makes me cry. I wrote a book. It's called The Poetry and Music of Science, and it tells the story of human creativity um, through the ages, with philosophy and theology, and through interviews I've had with artists, composers, and musicians. It's got a chapter on maths and music, and it's got a chapter on why it is that experimental science was born at the same time as the early English novel. And from what I said about Bacon, an experiment, you might get a clue as to how that works out. That's called Poetry Music of Science. So those are the books. It's not a time, it's only three yeah, that's um, that's fantastic and um, extremely impressive for a theoretical physicist. So um, do do check them out. I do. I really highly recommend them. I have actually uh, I've read uh, Faith and Wisdom and Science. So um, I will link to uh, Tom's writing in the show notes for people who need links, uh, and you can find them all there. Please send any questions my way uh, about this podcast or any others. Uh, you know where to get at me, um, at Stephanie Ripper on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So um, thank you all so much, and thank you again, Tom. This has been really, really lovely. Well, thank you, Stephanie. I've really enjoyed it. It's made me think. <laughs> made me think very hard. <laughs> Gosh, I'm now exhausted. Do all your interviews feel feel this time when they've had a three forty five minute conversation with you? It's been a real pleasure. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Oh.